What a bizarre little story. Friends, we'll we'll dive into this together. Let us begin in prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Friends, whenever I am left alone in a hardware store for really any length of time, I will inevitably begin to think that if only I bought the right tools, I could do anything. Now, this is a bold belief for me especially to hold, considering that I once spent more than a week in a previous house that we lived in, more than a week trying to figure out why a bathroom outlet stopped working only to discover that the house had a second electrical panel that I had walked by every day for some number of months without ever noticing. It was this belief that eventually led me to buy a little tool called a handle puller for that same bathroom because I got it in my head that surely I could replace and upgrade the bathtub fixture, and if I was doing that, I might as well just reglaze the tub at the same time. It managed to turn out mostly okay. There was one big drip of glaze on the side of the tub that taunted me until the day we moved out of that house. But I started to really think that any tool that I might need, if I could just have it, I could do anything I wanted. It was that belief that made me sure that I could fix an issue with the drain under the sink in that bathroom. And that belief even managed to persist when I had a plumber end up doing the job because we were going out of town And then I heard about how lucky I had gotten because the drain pipe broke off inside of the wall and immediately made the repair much more complicated. I have no reason to believe that I could do any repair, and yet nothing has been able to shake me of this notion that if I just had the right tool for the job, I can tackle anything. And I mean, I'm not sure why I believe it. It it could be those calm and comforting YouTube videos that explain so confidently how to tackle basic home repair jobs. It could be nothing more than the pure, unadulterated, untested confidence of youth still lingering as I age. Or it could be that we're all at least a little bit inclined to think that we have whatever it might take to do anything we put our mind to. Jennifer and I recently started watching a home improvement show called Help, I've Wrecked My House, which is a show that is all about a professional contractor who comes in to help homeowners who have taken on larger renovations, larger than they can manage renovations in their house. And almost every episode begins in the same way, the homeowner talking about all the projects that they have successfully completed throughout the years. One of the homeowners, in fact, had renovated a whole another house before moving on to this one. And yet, then all of them tell the story about discovering that they were in over their heads in their current house. And then the camera pans through their house as they, uh, and shows all of what they have done. Massive holes in the drywall, tile partially removed from around the fireplace, new flooring that abruptly stops halfway through the room, windows installed but never trimmed out, and on and on and on and on. And in every episode we watch, we see the mess these well-meaning and talented people have made of their own house. And every episode, I think to myself, how easily that could be me one day. Even the most skilled, the most talented people 
have a limit to what they can do. Every one of us needs to know our limitations or else we are liable to make a whole mess of things. Solomon's story here, here and throughout the scripture, tells of a king who believes that with the right tools in his hand, he has what it takes to lead God's people. The question, though, is does he, or is he going to make a mess of things? This is the uh, the sentiment at the root of the question that Solomon puts to God in this encounter. There in verse 9, when Solomon asks, who is able to govern this important people of yours? Though we might notice it's actually not a question in the translation we used this morning. There, Solomon presents it as a statement saying to God, no one is able to govern this important people of yours without your help. There are two different but legitimate ways to interpret the original Hebrew text here. And it begins to reveal something hidden but important about this story. That there is a lot of ambiguity in the way that it is told. Because told one way, Solomon knows that no one can govern God's people unless they have God's help. Told the other way, Solomon puts forth what seems like it could be a rhetorical question. Who can govern God's people? And implies that no one can govern God's people. And yet, opens up the possibility that Solomon might not see it that way. In fact, he might see himself as the answer to his own question. If only he had the right tool. If only he had a bit more wisdom for the job. These two divergent interpretations of Solomon's story carry throughout the entire narrative. On the surface, the story is one that heaps praises on a beloved king and the legacy his reign has left. And yet there are these moments that make the reader pause to grapple with literary puzzles. Moments that make us wonder if the narrator might be giving us a wink and a nudge that make it seem like Solomon's story may not be one of praise, but in fact, the opposite. And is present from the very beginning. Our passage opens with Solomon offering sacrifices at the shrine in Gibeon. Shrine in this text, sometimes called high places in other translations. Shrine seems to imply that this is a place of worship for other gods. And so it's not completely clear whether Solomon is worshiping the God of Israel here in a less than appropriate place, or if Solomon is offering to other gods of the time. Just a verse earlier, before we began reading, the narrator tells us, Now Solomon loved the Lord by walking in the laws of his father David, with the exception that he also sacrificed and burned incense at the shrines. On the one hand, it's a praise of Solomon's character, On the other hand, that's a really big exception. It's a little bit like saying someone is a faithful vegetarian except for the steak dinners that they eat every Friday night. I mean, the second part kind of negates the first part. Is Solomon trying to follow God or not? And this ambiguity continues into the story. It continues into Solomon's dream when God shows up, but God is acting very strange. Ask whatever you wish, God says, and I'll give it to you. And the only way God could sound more like a genie here is if it was an offering of three wishes and not just one. And as the story goes, God does grant Solomon wisdom with wealth and fame as a nice bonus. 
before telling Solomon, there has never been anyone like you before, and there never will be again. Which is a nice thing to say, very complimentary. And it's also a very weird thing for God to say to someone. And then Solomon wakes up, and the text tells us Solomon realized it was all a dream. This is a puzzling thing to emphasize because we know it already. The narrator makes a point of telling us at the start that Solomon's interaction with God all happened in a dream at night. To stop the whole narrative, to tell us again, should give us pause. Now we know that people throughout Scripture have had divine encounters in their sleep. And yet there's this extra emphasis on the fact that Solomon was dreaming. Is it meant to tell us that it was a dream or that it was only a dream? We might need additional evidence. So the story moves to provide an example to prove or disprove Solomon's incredible wisdom. Two women come to Solomon. They're seeking justice in a complicated situation where each of them claims motherhood over a living infant while insisting the child of the other has died. They go back and forth between Solomon. My son is alive and yours is dead, says one, while the other retorts, no, my son is alive and yours is dead. And Solomon listens to this back and forth for a little while and then breaks in to summarize it all. And he says, ah, this one says, my son is alive and yours is dead, while the other one says, my son is alive and yours is dead. Oh, good. Solomon gets it. And then Solomon says, bring me a sword. And this already strange story just goes right off the rails. In paintings, this moment is traditionally depicted with Solomon on his throne, two women there in the chamber, and then a guard holding a sword in one hand and dangling an infant by the ankle in the other. Solomon has taken what was already a volatile situation with two women overwhelmed by grief and loss and pain and conflict, and Solomon has made it so that there is now literally a life hanging in the balance. Another life. A second century rabbi commenting on this passage once said, if I had been there, I would put a rope around Solomon's neck. For one dead child was apparently not enough for him. No, he had to command that the second be divided in two. If we skip too quickly through this story, if we handle it like some clever little moment in an imaginary world, we can miss the terrible weight of this moment when the king, trying to prove his wisdom, plays chicken with a child's life. And if we can forget for a moment that we know how it turns out, then it only gets worse. What would Solomon have done if neither woman was willing to see the child killed? What would Solomon have done if both women were willing to see the child killed? How wise a move can this be when the whole situation rests on two grieving mothers, one who has lost their child in death and the other who stands now to lose her child? How wise can it be when this whole situation rests on two grieving mothers responding in a particular way, when we know how well, when we know well how variable grief can be, when we know well that there is no normal way to process pain and loss. And even if it does work out as it does, 
Are we so ready to let the ends justify this means? Now, thankfully, the situation does seem to resolve well. It becomes apparent that one woman is the mother, while the other is not. And we can assume that Solomon realizes this. But there's a bit of ambiguity even here, though it's papered over in so many translations. In the Hebrew, Solomon does not say, give the first woman the child. He simply says, give her the child. And then lets the reader decide who he must mean. I mean, he has to refer to the compassionate mother, right? This story apparently makes its way around the kingdom. And it is said that the people feared the Lord. Be, they, excuse me. They feared the king because they saw the type of wisdom he had in him. Some translations take this to mean that the people were in awe of the king like one might revere the Lord when Scripture talks about fearing the Lord. But I wonder if their fear was more visceral than that. I mean, after all, what's scarier than a king so assured of their own wisdom that they don't even pause before threatening to kill a child just to solve a dilemma? What's scarier than a ruler who uses divine blessing to justify the wisdom of the decisions he makes? What's scarier than a ruler who believes he is so uniquely blessed by God to lead a people that he would also believe he deserves wealth and fame? Perhaps the scariest thing is that Solomon wants so badly to be a good king that he steps confidently beyond his ability and beyond his limitations and is oblivious to the mess that he creates. For it would seem that Solomon really does want to be a good king. And there's parts of his legacy that show this so very well. Solomon is the king that builds the temple. And throughout the course of his reign, there is peace in Israel. But the temple and peace come at a cost. King Solomon takes a toll on his people. The temple took seven years to build And Solomon used forced labor and took taxes from the people to pay for it. And then, when it was done, he spent 13 years building a temple for himself in the same way. A temple for himself and his first wife from Egypt and also the 299 additional wives. No, excuse me, 699 additional wives, not counting the 300 additional women he had just around the palace perhaps for fun. He gathered together an army of 40,000 horses and had 12,000 horsemen there to ride them just in case things went downhill. When there was a rebellion in the north of Israel, he squashed it. They rebelled because they were unhappy with the unfair taxation that he was levying to build the temple and also his palace. And there was a peace for a moment, but it only lasted as long as Solomon did. And it all started to fracture as soon as he was gone, and his son was on the throne, a son who was no better, who apparently learned from his father that to rule meant taxing the people. And so he increased the taxation, and the rebellious spirit of the people increased in turn. Solomon wanted to be a good king, tried very hard to be a good king, perhaps even thought he had what it took. But he may never have been a wise king. 
It was part of his legacy. And as time went on, the people would eventually ascribe anything wise written anywhere to the name of King Solomon, including the book of Proverbs, which points out in the very first chapter that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And as it goes on, Proverbs builds on this idea, this sense that wisdom, real wisdom, has little to do with anything except for finding God, exploring the laws and instructions that God has left us, God's people, and letting that be the guide and the rule for our lives. It does not appear that Solomon ever sought out wisdom like this. If he had, he might have read the book of Deuteronomy, which lays out in very exacting detail a curious instruction about what a king should do. The other kings of the world existed and held power and tried for peace in a number of ways, but God told the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy that their king should be different, that their king should have no horses, should own no places to keep money, and should have no more wives than just one. That was what other nations did. They had whole armies full of horses and people to ride them so they could conquer other nations and win peace through violence. They levied taxes on their people in order to keep them loyal and to build things for the kingdom. And they married wife after wife from other nations as a way of building treaties and yet watering down their own loyalties at the same time. Deuteronomy says that God's king, the king that God would pick for Israel, would do none of those things. Instead, the king was to study the scriptures. From morning to night, the king was to read the law, to absorb it so deeply that the king would do nothing but live and share the law for God's people. This would be a good king. This would be a wise king. There are two ways to read Solomon's story. It could be a story that says, look at how great Solomon was. It could also be a story that says, look at how great Solomon was at violating God's law, at living according to the ways of all the other nations and abandoning the ways of God's people. Who can lead these people? Solomon once asked and really thought that it could be him, that he had what it took. And he would go on to amass all of the things that he thought a king needed, riches and power and wisdom. But riches and power wasn't enough, and his wisdom seemed more like a sham, a carnival trick, cleverness disguised as something more. Solomon never seemed to understand that real wisdom might be in knowing that we don't have what it takes on our own. That real wisdom might be knowing our own limitations and our weaknesses and knowing where to go when we reach the end of our own abilities. That real wisdom might be knowing what God can do through us, as weak and as frail as we are. The answer to Solomon's question was never Solomon or anyone else except for God. It's a shame that Solomon never saw it. 
And so it is that Solomon's most enduring legacy may well be that Jesus was once talking to his disciples about greed and that persistent thought that if only we had enough money, then we could do all the good and worthwhile things we ever wanted to do. And Jesus said to his disciples, look at the lilies of the field. Truly, I tell you, even Solomon in all of his splendor was never dressed like one of these. Solomon's most enduring legacy may well be that Jesus taught that even those who have everything they could ever imagine, more than they could ever imagine, still had less than those who rely on God for their every need. Solomon's most enduring legacy may well be the lesson that Solomon never learned. That true wisdom comes not in insight and not in clever retorts, but in understanding how little we have and how little we are and how much God can do with that. There may well be a deep blessing to be found when we reach the end of what we can do and we reach for God who works in our weaknesses. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I invite us to continue in worship as we sing now together. It's me, it's me, O Lord. Number 352 in the hymnal and all the words will be on the screen. Let us stand and sing together.